I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. My guest this week is Colin Burrow, a senior research fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, editor of Shakespeare's Sonnets and Poems, and his most recent book is Imitating Authors, Plato to Futurity. He last appeared on the podcast in January, talking about the fiction of Ursula Le Guin. And his latest piece for us in the current issue of the LRV is on the critic Christopher Ricks. It's a review of Ricks's recent essay collection, Along Heroic Lines. Hello, Colin, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hello, Tom. It's very nice to uh, be here virtually. So a, a small but also large question to begin with. Who is Christopher Ricks? Well, people say he's the greatest living critic. I think there's a case to be made for that. He was professor at Bristol for many years and then moved to Cambridge, where he was famous during the period of the row over structuralism and then moved to Boston, where he has an editorial institute. And he tirelessly writes about every literary author, really, from Keats to Milton to Tennyson to Bob Dylan, and is also actually very good about Henry James. And his key trick, as it were, is close verbal analysis. And it was that focus on close verbal analysis, I suppose, which provoked the uh, much whipped up structuralism row in Cambridge, which was seen as a row between traditional close reading and on the one hand and literary theory on the other. But he has survived all those rows, gone on to have other rows with other people and continues to write. His first book, is this right, was published in 1963 when he was 30. It was Milton's Grand Style. And as you as you already mentioned, a lot of his work over the half century since then, as both editor, his a three volume edition of Tennyson is pretty much definitive, isn't it? And he's edited T. S. Eliot as well. So he writes about what might be called, I suppose, the the big men of the Western canon, that Milton and Keats and Tennyson and T. S. Eliot and Dylan and. But in this in this new book, does he sort of stick to those? I hesitate to say obvious writers, but those, <laughs> or does he does he range more widely? He ranges a bit more widely. That's a not particularly successful essay, actually, on Iron Boogan, but the, the high points are um, essays on Geoffrey Hill and a couple of essays on Henry James. But he does tend to stick with the big boys, yeah. And you also referred to him as a, his kind of criticism as traditional. And I suppose one question of that is what what is the what is the tradition that 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 he belongs to, because you wrote about William Empson for the LRB in the summer and you mentioned Ricks in that piece sort of as one of Empson's heirs, I guess. I mean, is it helpful to think of him as an Empsonian critic? Yeah, I think it is. He has nothing but praise for Empson in his quotations from Empson, and he's very good at picking out the best bits of Empson's criticism. 
but he's probably traditional in a, an even wider sense in that one of his recurrent reference points is Samuel Johnson and underlying the verbal pirouettes and the close reading and the preoccupation with multiple senses that he's getting from Empson, there is also a deep respect for the literary critic as the voice of reason um, in a Samuel Johnson kind of way. So he is quite happy to make judgments about texts and to criticise texts for being wrong or bad or factually incorrect or morally deplorable. So he will talk about texts in terms that connect with everyday morality in a way that I suppose a, a more abstractly inclined theoretician might not. Even to the extent that his book on Dylan was called Dylan's Visions of Sin, so even beyond morality, he write about texts and their yes. relationship to, to yes. sin as well. Although that was sort of a slightly a MacGuffin, I thought, in that book, the question of sin. But I think the Dylan book is not one of his best books um, for a number of reasons. I, I mean, I think he talks of there of using sin as his handle on the bundle, and that's a phrase itself that derives from Empson. That's to say, a way into the body of work. And as a handle for that particular bundle, it just doesn't really work because Dylan is not very interested in sin, or at least when he uses the word sin, it tends to be in deliberately ironised ways. So, you know, um, Ophelia's sin is her lifelessness. Well, that's not your orthodox definition of sin. And I think as a result, that book, though it bubbles with enthusiasm and insights and things like that, doesn't quite work as a whole in the way that some of the other books do. And I think also there's something about Dylan that doesn't bring out the best in Christopher Ricks, in that it seems to me a weakness of Dylan, or an art, you know, I would, I would see it as a weakness of Dylan, that he loves the little glittering great phrase. And those great phrases catch you in your mind and go round and round in your mind, but they are, they are sometimes just great phrases. And as a critic, I think Christopher Ricks sometimes also gets stuck on great phrases and loses the wider picture as a result. So, you know, when, when Dylan says, um, Yonder stands your orphan with his gun crying like a fire in the sun. You go, oh, a fire in the sun. Now, is that a little a little tiny flicker in the great conflagration that is the sun itself? Or is it a little campfire out in the open, which you can barely see because it's such a sunny day? And, you know, it's a wonderful phrase, but it doesn't necessarily go beyond being a wonderful phrase. And I think uh, the Dylan book creates, in a way, a perfect synergy between critic and subject in that both of them are great lovers of the uh, phrase that explodes in your mind, but it ends up being a series of phrases rather than something that really gets to the heart of things. And I think Rick's at his best will actually get to the heart of things. And my view is he doesn't quite in that book. But as you say, it's a bit of a MacGuffin, the, the, the sin <laughs> angle in, in there. And the other thing about those phrases and those songs, and we maybe get this a little bit later, is the the fact that when they're sung, you hear them and you think, oh, that's a great line. And then here along comes the next line. And you don't have time to stop and think. Whereas yeah. if you if you start to look at those, if you look at Dylan's songs as texts, maybe the mistake because you, 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 you pause and you look at that line again rather than just having let it fly by and onto the next one. 
But you, you mentioned that problem in your piece. You talk about the woods and the woods and trees. The idea that sometimes if you too close a reading of particular words, particular things, and you lose sight of of the whole. But you also then come round again and defend that because actually looking very closely at one small part of something can sometimes give a an idea of of the whole, and it can be a way to illuminate. Absolutely. And and that phrase that Ricks uses from Emerson of the handle on the bundle in some ways sums that up, doesn't it? Because a handle on a bundle is a small way of getting hold of a large thing. And when Ricks really gets it right, he gets exactly the right handle for exactly the right bundle. And I think his book on Eliot, T.S. Eliot and Prejudice, is a really good example of him getting hold of exactly the right thing writing about prejudice in Eliot is, requires immense delicacy because Eliot wrote about Jews in particular in ways that would make any reader uncomfortable, even writing about Jews in, at one point in his career in a way that made him uncomfortable. And Ricks talks about that directly. He talks about prejudice as a way of forming a prior judgment of a work and, and shows how Eliot's poems not just utter remarks which might indicate that Eliot himself was prejudiced, but they work with the prejudices and perceptions of the reader, in some, sometimes provoking them. And I think what makes that particular handle on the bundle such a good way into Eliot is that not only does it get you into a number of the earlier poems, it also enables Ricks to give a sort of overall narrative of Eliot's career where as he sees it, by the time you get to four quartets, Eliot isn't actually provoking prejudice in quite prejudiced responses in quite the same way as he is at the period of the wasteland. And the result is a kind of writing that you know avoids the naming people in ways that might encourage particular stereotypical reactions to them. And it, it involves being less spiky and less... Um, critical in its ways of describing the world. So there he does get one little concept which he comes back to and a word which he comes back to in Eliot which just explodes into the whole of the Eliot oeuvre. And it's that book was written in 1988 and I went to the lectures from which it derived when I was an undergraduate and they were nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning which is you know um, the time you don't want to give lectures. There weren't all that many of us there, but the, um, the ones of us who were there stuck with it and learned a great deal from it. And I remember elements of those lectures. They were really, they were really memorable. You did feel that this was someone lifting the lid off a text and lifting the lid off an author. And in the more recent collection, he does that with the work of his old friend, Geoffrey Hill, in remarkable ways, I think, by just focusing on the smallest possible thing, which is Hill's tendency to use words that end ibble and abble. And he teases out from that a really deep analysis of Hill, but also a critical reading of Hill, where he says what's wrong with him. And that thing about Eliot and the, thinking about him in terms of the reader's response, and even saying reader response puts in mind of Stanley Fish and his ideas of about reader response theories. But of course, Fish is one of the people who Ricks argued with quite dramatically. So how does that differ from Stanley Fish's views of, of reader response theory and Milton? I mean, does does Ricks disagree with Fish's idea about that we're 
as it were, tempted, if I'm getting this right, the idea that the reader of Paradise Lost is, is tempted? It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. I mean, again, when I was an undergraduate, I, I went to lectures by Ricks um, about his, his enemies. And one of, one of the most prejudicial remarks he made, actually, was uh, about Stanley Fish, where he said that the real problem with Stanley Fish was that he wanted to be called Stanley E. Fish, and that was hideously euphonious, and that showed that he was that he didn't have an ear. And as a criticism of a critic, it's not a particularly good one. And I think it does mask actually a much greater concern for how readers read and respond than Ricks would want to acknowledge and a much greater affinity with with fish i think the fish book on milton is finally morally crude in that it always comes down on the side of orthodoxy and i think ricks is just a much more sophisticated critic because he can allow that orthodoxy and heterodoxy battle them battle each other in paradise lost in a way that it makes a much more three-dimensional poem than Fish allows, but um, he he is interested in how we get provoked uh, and how we read and misread texts in a way that shows that he's not simply not listening to the contemporary critics with whom he sort of vocally disagreed. And I, mean, I suppose that idea of, I mean, if he's being drawn to texts that are themselves combative or have disagreement within them that he's clearly drawn to, to disagreement as a fertile I don't know as a fertile ground for, for thinking about things and you, you do mention in the piece that uh, well it may not really be so much a disagreement that he um one of his essays is about anagrams in Shakespeare's sonnets and of course you've you've edited Shakespeare's sonnets and you say in the piece that Ricks gives your edition some genial stick for emphasizing their oral and performative aspects and then and then you, well, you then go on to give him some genial stick for making too much of the anagrams that he sees in the sonnets that, that you don't see in them. It's all genial. I think, you know, he is brilliantly attentive to the words on the page and not just the words on the page, but the shape of a poem on the page or the punctuation on the page. And I think he looks sometimes too closely. And that comes through in what was originally a lecture on the on, on the sonnets where he sees the letters dancing around and recomposing themselves in front of his eyes and doesn't i think always listen to the sounds and i mean i i emphasize the um oral and performative elements of the sonnets in my edition largely because i i wanted to break away from what was then a tendency just to see the non-dramatic Shakespeare as being a completely separate thing from the dramatic Shakespeare. And I just want to say, well, look, it's, it, there were a lot of the same things going on. Um, so it wasn't a dogmatic commitment to sound over the printed text. But I think the kind of attention that Ricks gives to the, the printed form of the sonnets I mustn't say it's, it fetishizes the um, printed text because I can't remember in which one of his essays somebody accuses him of, of making a fetish or something or other, and he says in parentheses, "No, my fetish is really women's shoes." But he, it's not that he makes a fetish of the printed text, but I think he does just just sit there over it, seeing it uh, with with such intensity that um, other things can sometimes pass him by. And certainly in the case of the printed text of the sonnets, 
it's a pretty risky thing to do because, well, when I was a graduate student, one of the things I worked on was Sir John Harrington's translation of Ariosto's Orlando Furioso. And, and that's one of the very few texts, actually, where we have the manuscript version of the poem from which the printer cast off his copy. And if you look at the manuscript version, the spelling's all completely different from the printed version, and the punctuation is all completely different, and that will have happened with the sonnets as well. So inferences from the spelling and layout of Shakespeare's sonnets is a pretty risky thing to do in itself. And, you know, I can see sometimes that he's seeing things which are there, but more often I would, you know, I would go with how it sounds, how it reads aloud, not how it appears on the page. And that, as we mentioned earlier, that, that again with his book on Dylan has a similar problem. Because one of the things I remember from that, there's this, in many ways, utterly brilliant reading of The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, where he looks at almost every word in the song, and then he, something which, you know, I listened to that song many times and had sort of noticed without noticing that he, that Dylan never says that Hattie Carroll was, was black, and that William Zanzinger, the man who murdered her, was white. But you know, listening to it. And he's, so he get all these things, but at the same time, and he even talks about the cadences of the lines, but at no point does he talk about the actual, the actual cadences in it as a song. And he doesn't talk about the rhythm and these way. And it's, I mean, it seems almost willfully perverse, his insistence on, on, on the, the text rather than the sound. But then again, as you, but then he talks about rhyme a lot and he is interested in sound. And as you say, his slightly bizarre criticism of Stanley E. Fish suggests that he's very interested in the way things sound. Yeah, I think with the Dylan book in particular, the um, the lack of focus on the music is sort of bizarre. And I think the other thing, the other feature of it that is to me very strange is that it's always about individual songs. And so he doesn't really think about the other aspects of a rock musician's art, which is putting together an album and making something that's where songs talk to each other. It's always this song is separate from this song and uh, this song is about sloth and this one is about charity, rather than thinking about, well, what an extraordinary achievement Blood on the Tracks is as a totality. And actually, to my eyes, that's the best thing Dylan ever did by a, a considerable margin. And he doesn't really even talk about any of those songs which are apart from anything else musically so much more carefully crafted than either the very early material which he does talk about really well i think or some of the overproduced slightly later stuff so yeah there are limitations that arise from focusing on textual detail and regarding literature which is a multi-sensual experience as being chiefly text but that goes along with his work as an editor, because he's not only edited Tennyson and Eliot, as you say, but he's also helped to edit Bob Dylan's lyrics as though they are text rather than music. And it, it does lose something. And I think he probably knows that, actually. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below.
another question which comes up from what you were saying about the sonnets and the anagrams question. In your piece, you talk about the way that when people around 1600 did produce anagrams, they made quite a big deal out of it. <laughs> they said, and look, and here's an anagram. And they spelled it out. And also the, the question of if you don't have any rules about spelling, then anagrams are slightly less interesting things because presumably if you need an extra L, you can just shove in an extra L <laughs> that you've got your anagram. How interested is he in, in historical context? Well, it's a good question because he is interested in the question of intention. He's interested in the question of not only intention, but also of unconscious intentions, which I think is sometimes a concept he uses to license the teasing out of things that he sees from a text and, and seeing them as part of what the author meant to achieve. But his conception of intention doesn't bring with it a heavily contextual mode of reading. He'll read texts in relation to each other from widely different periods in a way that I think one could say just straightforwardly a more boring critic wouldn't. You will not get a solemn account of the state of the Church of England and its relationship to the poems of Tennyson from Christopher Ricks, but you will get a sense of why you should read Tennyson. So the historical doesn't figure very large, and I think when it comes to talking about anagrams, well, there are historical differences in the ways in which people anagrammatize, and he, he would regard Lucretius describing the movement of atoms in ways that allows the elementa, the, which can mean the letters or the atoms of speech to recombine and sort of dance together on the page in front of your eyes. He'd see that as being analogous to George Chapman composing an anagram of the name of Henry Prince of Wales in order to praise Henry Prince of Wales. And I don't think they are really analogous. Um, Lucretius is doing what he does with anagrams because he has a particular view of the universe and how it's made up of atoms which can be recombined to form new things. And that gives him license to see the same thing going on in the language that he's he's writing down and presenting to his readers. But Chapman is speaking to a particular audience and trying to praise him in a particular way and get a few quid for it. Very, very different cultural practices. And I think the differences there are probably more important than similarities, but there are, there are similarities. Ricks would you know, being less historically minded probably than I am, would downplay those historical differences. And, you know, there's room for both. But there is playfulness in both, isn't there? That when, that if Lucretius is trying to persuade his readers that the, the world is made up of atoms, and he says, and of course it's possible, because look, we've only got this, this here are the letters. He's using letters as an analogy for atoms. But then they think when he says, and you can get fire out of wood, the way you can get the word ignis out of the word lignis. I mean, that's sort of quite clever, but it, do, it doesn't seem terribly solemn. Yeah. But then we know nothing about Lucretius, and so maybe he was deadly serious, but, you know, he was, <laughs> there's no playfulness at all. I think there is playfulness there, and I think there's probably um, a degree of playfulness even in encomiastic in, in anagrams in the 17th century, where part of the game is saying, is, uh, you know, look, your highness, I can do this with your name. Ain't I clever? You know, there is a, a, a kind of kind of display and and uh, almost humour in that, I suppose, too. And this also comes back to the idea of Rick's being interested in 
as you say, he suggests unconscious intention in writers and he's very interested in illusion. And often he'll say if he sees an illusion, illusion which he knows perfectly well, the writer can't have made, he'll say, well, it's not a source, but it is an an analogue. And he can use this idea of the analogue to get around a lot of what might be more literal-minded difficulties with some of the similarities he draws between things. But it is this interest in the readers, without saying he reads too much into things, there's a sense in which it doesn't matter that Shakespeare wasn't making anagrams, that if you look at the manuscript, the same anagrams that we see wouldn't be there. But here, these poems are living things, in the sense that here they are, we're reading them now. And once Christopher Ricks has pointed out the anagrams in one of Shakespeare's sonnets in an edition that one of his readers might read, it's quite hard not to see them. Yeah. And I think I think there is a, a sort of wider point there too about his critical method, which is probably not something he would directly want to acknowledge, which is that despite his talk about intention and despite sounding like a strict believer in only finding in texts what authors have in some sense put there, he is actually a sort of receiver, primarily as a critic, and he sees texts as points where thoughts cluster in a reader and a receiver, uh, and where canons are formed by illusion and echo. And that means that there is a sort of contra within the Rick's critical performance, it seems to me, where texts are seen in a much more, you know, to put it crudely, postmodern way as radiating outwards into allusions and inferences and echoes that may or may not be there. So I think that feature of his work reflects very much sort of where he was, is historically, because he has the overt presence of a critical conservative who is defending the idea of a literary canon and who is in favour of the concept of intentionality in the interpretation of literary texts. And yet, you know, the people that he spent his early career fighting and resisting nonetheless have influenced him. I mean, he is he is somebody who is who thinks about texts in a way that encourages deconstructive interpretation where you hear it Tennyson within Keats or vice versa. So he he has absorbed, I think, covertly the voices of some of his adversaries. Bob Dylan says you go out you go outside and you're influenced and there's nothing you can do about it. That you can't that one of the things about or they or they to talk about influence rather than illusion. You don't want to make him Sounds too like Harold Bloom, who's another <laughs> opposite of in many ways. He wrote Christopher Ricks, he wrote quite he wrote quite a lot for the LRB in the nineteen eighties when when Carl Miller was the was the editor. Including he, a piece on Empson that appeared in nineteen eighty five, quite soon after Empson had died. And he quoted this very wonderful passage from an essay of Empson's on Yeats, where Empson is remembering this mechanical bird that his grandmother had and and he writes, Such prose is at least as well written as good poetry which touches on two things that you mentioned in your piece. One about his, he's, he doesn't see a fundamental difference between prose and poetry. And the other is this idea that creation is a form of criticism 
or of criticism as a form of creation. Um, and you call it the difference between seeing and making. I suppose the question that do you, th- do you think it's a problem when critics try to get too creative? Well, one of the things that Ricks says repeatedly is that literary criticism, unlike criticism of other arts, operates in the same medium as that which it criticizes. So you don't paint a painting when you're doing art criticism, you, you write a prose description. Um, whereas when you're describing a work of literature, you're doing so using words that could come from and be become almost coextensive with the thing that you're analyzing. And that is self-evidently true. I think that critics need to be aware of that, but I think they also need to be humble about it and accept that what they're doing is dealing with stuff that goes way beyond their ability to see and to feel and present their role as being enabling others to see and feel a little bit further into those extraordinary works. And I think Rick's probably thinks that too, but I think also his conviction that the medium of criticism and the medium of poetry and prose is entirely the same does lead him to want to create more than maybe critics should. Well, you make a brilliant point in the piece about the ambiguity of the phrase seeing things, which, as you say, can mean both observing things which are there and imagining things which are not there. And it's a a very fine line between them. It is. And and a really good critic will re-describe a work in such a way as to make readers see new things in it. Um, And that's what critics do. And that is a kind of creation, but it is a very secondary form of creation. The essay on the novelist as critic in Along Heroic Lines is a very interesting one, really, because it's chiefly about the relationship between Henry James and George Eliot and the um, the way that Henry James rewrites Daniel Deronda in Portrait of a Lady. But it's it's also more widely about how one artist's response to another is in part a critical act. And in the case of the relationship between George Eliot and Henry James, that's certainly true. But there's a weird section in the middle of that essay where he's talking about Dickens and about Charlotte Bronte and about not very good critical remarks made by novelists about other novelists. And that, to me sort of undermines the overall case that the artist is fundamentally a critic or that you have to be a critic in order to create. Because I think there are quite a few novelists, even in the 19th century, who read their predecessors pretty uncritically, actually, um, and who weren't creative artists because they were critics principally. And the James-George Eliot relationship is in that respect I think rather an exception and I think he shows that it's an exception in the in the course of that piece and and throughout the collection of essays he I mean because it's called along heroic lines it's partly about the um what he calls the heroic line or the um the ambic pentameter and he does this quite eccentric thing but quite persuasive thing actually of quoting passages of prose and then um, picking out beneath the quotation heroic lines within that prose where the writer of prose fiction starts 
sounding like Shakespeare or, or producing Shakespearean rhythms. And some of those moments where he's hearing poems within prose really carry conviction and some of them really don't carry conviction. And it again seems to me to be a case of his taking us to that rather perilous dividing point between seeing things which are there and seeing things which aren't there, or in this case hearing things which aren't quite there. Um, so making prose and poetry seamlessly part of the same discursive realm as literary criticism and seeing prose and poetry as being akin to each other, those are those are hazardous processes and in some respects counterintuitive processes because poems are different from prose narratives. The critical methods used to analyse them could be very similar, but the aims of a poet of a short writing a short lyric poem are profoundly different from the aims of a novelist writing an account of a marriage or a courtship. They just are different things. But the Rick's critical method does tend to take all texts in the same way, take all texts as um, accumulations of felicitous expressions or gatherings of heroic lines. And I think that is actually a limitation of the method because it can make it actually finally indiscriminating in, in not recognising distinctions. And if you take it to this logical conclusion, you almost get to the, again, that word postmodern point of view. You say, well, it's all just language. It's all language. And there's no difference between an editorial in the sun and Paradise Lost. They're all, it's all language. And if you're, not if you're not prepared to say that, where do you, the idea that somehow this, we carve out this realm as being different from that and yet the same and the, the other thing about the the iambic pentameter is isn't it that the reason that it's used in poetry and in especially dramatic poetry is because we most closely speak in iambic pentameter if you're trying to create a, a line of verse that matches the natural spoken rhythms of english it tends to be the way we all do speak, yes. Um, yeah. You will get pentameters uh, in any stretch of writing, and it doesn't have to be a, a miracle. And as you say, the reason why the pentameter caught on on the early modern stage was because you could drift from it from, uh, through high expressions of rhetorically formed rage through to colloquial exchanges between mates. It is its flexibility and its dissolvability into prose that makes it such a powerful resource. And it is also the fact that a lighter stress followed by a heavier stress is a lot easier to say than four heavy stresses in a row. Um, so, yes, there is a, a kind of trick going on there. And I, th I think also your point that the end point of the Rixian project might be much more postmodern than he acknowledges, that's to say, it's all text. Uh, that is a really powerful point. I think it's one that would, would make him cross, but I think it might also be true and it might make him cross because it's a bit true. And the question of the, the difference between a good critic and, and a bad critic, I remember I had a teacher at university telling me more or less that a good critic is one who opens a text up and a bad critic is one who closes a text down. And, I th and Rick's, in that sense, is surely one of the very best in, in terms of being an opener-upper rather than a, a closer-downer. Absolutely, absolutely. 
And I think a crucial part of that, actually, which we haven't talked about at all, is just his energy and his humour. Because you, you can read T.S. Eliot and Prejudice and just be laughing. Um, and just look again at the words and think, cool, yeah, I, I wish I'd seen that. And he's also funny and self-deprecating about himself, because there's one bit um, in the Dylan book, actually, when he's talking about that line, which I quote in the piece, uh, take what you have gathered from coincidence. And um, he talks about somebody else who had taken the whole couplet the highways for gamblers, you better use your sense, take what you've gathered from coincidence. And this other person had said, well, sense sounds like sense, C-E-N-T-S, as in money. And so gambler and sense and money is great. And then coincidence contains the word coin in its first two syllables. And Rick says, no, I don't like that. Um, and I don't like it re really probably because I didn't think of it. <laughs> And it's it's both a sort of uh, a moment where his method breaks down because you think, well, yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that Christopher Ricks might say, but yeah, he's 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 resisting it, and I think he's in that case right to resist both those things because I think they're both far fetched. But you know, he will laugh at himself and return to his own words and rethink them and criticise things that he has said himself before. So he is a great opener-up, and he's an opener-up not only of, of the words of others, but of his own words, where he can return, do them, rethink them, and qualify them too. We have to close things down, um, I'm afraid. So Colin Burrow, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Tom. You can read Colin Burrow's piece on Christopher Ricks in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Amir Srinivasan on Pets with Benefits, Adam Schatz on Richard Wright's Double Vision, and Rosa Lister on Louisiana Underwater. On next week's podcast, the second episode of Irina Dumitrescu and Mary Wellesley's series of Encounters with Medieval Women, in which they'll be discussing Julian of Norwich. This episode was produced by Eliane Glazer. The music is by Kieran Brunt. The producer of the LRB podcast is Anthony Wilkes. <laughs>